Hi, and welcome to the first Coffee Q&A podcast with Scott Rayo. I'm here with my friend Vasily Lasuba today. Vas is going to ask some questions, and we're going to discuss the answers together. Uh, how are you doing, Vas? I'm good, yeah, and thank you for, for having me. I, I feel really happy to be here because I've been asking you questions for <laughs> close to 10 years, and it's nice for me to be able to you know, not use my own stuff and work with what people have sent you. So Vasily worked with me at a place called Cafe Myriad in Montreal about 10, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vasily was sort of famous for asking questions during shifts. He would sometimes ask me maybe a hundred questions during a shift. He was just like a vacuum of coffee knowledge. So ironically here, uh, Vas is here asking other people's questions about coffee, but let, let's do it. Let's, yeah. let's get into it. So the first question is from Krista Cavistani. And it goes, as far back as I can remember, I've been told to very quickly wiggle and rinse the portafilter under running group head before drying and filling the baskets. A friend recently told me that not only is this unnecessary, but actually flat out wrong. I've been searching online for sources and test results to prove one method or the other, but to little result. Does simply wiping remove enough of the fines and coffee oils that might have baked into a portafilter between shots? If I rinse and flush after I pull a shot, is it unnecessary to do so before? Will the water from the group head cool quickly enough to cool the portafilter? If only wiping is the more reliable method, how many shots can you pull with wiping in between before rinsing is completely necessary? Okay. This is a bit of a, a long, complicated question. The gist of it really is, how should you handle your portafilter between shots? Mm -hmm. And... Krista, there's definitely no test or, or proof out there that that's going to be successful all the time. This is one of those things, like many things in coffee, where maybe you just have to apply a little bit of common sense and be aware of what your goals are. So there's a famous phrase in coffee, clean, hot, dry, mm -hmm. that is, is basically telling you how you want your portafilter to be before you fill it with grounds. In, in your question, you mentioned uh, quickly enough to cool a portafilter. I, I, I think that's mistaken. You don't want to cool the portafilter. You want a piping hot portafilter. If the portafilter was room temperature or cool, then it's going to act as a heat sink. It's going to suck a lot of the heat out of the extraction process. Now, mind you, you could take a cold portafilter, pull a shot right now, and think it's delicious. So it's not that the portafilter temperature determines whether you could have a good or bad shot or such. It's more like, what is the best practice to be consistent and to get the results you want? And best practice generally is a cool, is a, is a hot, dry port filter. Now, should you rinse it every time? Definitely. Um, you don't want old coffee oil sitting in your port filter that might be going rancid. You don't want little fine particles baked into the holes of the basket. Eventually, what's going to happen is it's going to cause channeling because it's going to block some of the flow paths in the basket. So I have to stop you. You're yeah. saying we should rinse the portafilter with hot water yes. every time. Yes. Sorry, I didn't say that explicitly. Absolutely. So a good routine is you remove the portafilter, you bang out the grounds, you use the group head water to, to heat and clean the portafilter basket. And at the same time, you're also flushing the group head. So you're, you're it's sort of multitasking. Okay. Right? And, and then you dry it just before you put the grounds in. If you don't dry it before you put the grounds in, it's going to make channeling a little bit more likely because water will seek out other water. So if there's water around the edges of the portafilter, it's very possible that the water is finding the path of least resistance and that path might be around the grounds instead of through them. Okay, awesome. So I just want to add one little thing to this sure. question. The 
I actually did, was not aware that you should rinse the portafilter with hot water in between oh, okay. uh, uh, before, before cleaning the portafilter. But I've been doing it only when, when I have this issue of pucks sticking to the group head. Mm. Why does that happen? Well, when you're, when you're done with the shot, and the shot stops, the, the three-way valve or the, or the pressure release valve opens, and it sucks the liquid out of the area above the grounds. Now, some three-way valves are so powerful when they open that they, they create so much suction that it actually sucks some of the grounds up to the screen. And if the coffee cake, if the puck has enough cohesion, it might just stay up there. It might just stick to itself and stick to the screen. And then you remove the portafilter and some of the grounds are stuck to the screen. It's not a big deal. It doesn't tell you whether your shot was good or bad. It really just tells you how strong was the suction of the pressure, okay. relief, pressure release process. And, and would you be able to avoid that by using a larger portafilter size for a given dose? By having Poss more headspace? Possibly, but okay. So that might work. But now you've opened a can of worms. Because the, the basket's a properly designed basket is made for a certain dose. And if you start dosing smaller and smaller in a basket, let's say you have a 20 gram basket mm -hmm. and you put say 16 grams in it, mm -hmm. what's gonna happen is you have to grind finer because you have less bed depth now. Okay, in order to get the extraction level that you want, you have to go finer because the water doesn't dwell in the grounds as long. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you want, you want the grounds to offer a certain amount of resistance to the water, so you're gonna have to grind finer. But if the bed is really high, now you have to grind coarser. Somewhere in there is your optimal. I can't mm -hmm. tell you what it is, but if the basket was designed properly, you would you would hope that 18 grams in an 18 gram basket would be close to optimal. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Awesome. So off to the next question from Giorgos Papantonio. During a pour over, which is the preferred slurry temperature in your opinion? You see, I recently bought a water boiler in order to fill my kettle for hand brews and to my surprise, the water temperature was really low because of the heat loss during transfer and led to really low slurry temperature as well. I didn't see that coming since so many coffee shops around the world are working that way, filling the pour over kettle from a hot water source. It was really hard for me to accept that so many people are brewing coffee with hardly 90 degrees Celsius in their water kettle. And I think it's important to mention the slurry temperature and not the starting water temperature because depending on the brewing method, the first one may vary significantly. So Giorgos is being very perceptive. A lot of coffee bars are making some really bad decisions about how they make their pour-overs. I think if you're a good taster with a lot of experience in coffee, you should be dissatisfied with the vast majority of pour-overs you ever get in third-wave cafes. I think all of my friends agree with this. This, is, this should not be that controversial. Yeah. What, what percentage of pour-overs would you say you really enjoy when you go out? 15%. Okay, 15. I'm probably down at five, but we're in the same ballpark. Okay. That. And I'm not saying that it's all due to temperature, but this is one of the big issues is for the sake of convenience and expediency, a lot of coffee bars just pour water from a, a hot water tower that's usually at about, say, 207 Fahrenheit, maybe about 97 Celsius, mm -hmm. into a kettle. Maybe the kettle was preheated, maybe it wasn't, but either way, the kettle is going to lose, during the pouring, you're going to lose some heat, and in the kettle, you're going to lose some heat. And then pouring from the kettle into the grounds, you lose more heat. Mm -hmm. you, you're looking at probably losing 5 to 10 Celsius, 10 to 20 Fahrenheit of, of potential slurry temperature rather than from the extreme pouring boiling water mm -hmm. onto the grounds. So what's the best way to do this? 
I think whether you use a hot water tower or not, the kettle should be on an electric hot plate so that mm -hmm. the kettle itself has its own heat source. Mm -hmm. So even if you're filling kettles from a hot water tower, the kettle should bring the water back up to temperature. Yeah. So I, I personally choose about 207 uh, Fahrenheit, which is about 97 Celsius, mm -hmm. for my kettle temperature. I, I would love to go a little closer to boiling. I worry sometimes that the coffee could be a little bit acrid if you pour boiling water directly mm -hmm. over it. Although even, even that, I think I'm overly worried. I think you could even go hotter than 207 without a problem. Okay. Um, if you stick, so Vass, actually, you asked earlier about how do you measure slurry temperature yeah. best. Yeah. And we were talking about using a little uh, bare wire bead probe thermometer, uh, thermocouple. And if you stick one of those in the middle of your slurry during brewing, you will see how low your slurry temperatures can get. And let's say we're trying to make coffee brew somewhere around 200 Fahrenheit, maybe 94 Celsius. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to get there with a pour over. Yeah. It's really hard. It's almost impossible. So the strategy should be do everything you can to conserve heat. Yeah. Right. So really hot water. And also this is going to be counterintuitive to a lot of people of us, but plastic V60s, plastic vessels are better than glass or ceramic or metal because the plastic is a better insulator. You can, you can tell yourself, you can prove to yourself what the best uh, vessels are for brewing because if you grab the outside of the brewer and it's hot, it's losing heat. Yeah. But if you grab a plastic V60 during brewing, you don't feel anything. Okay. Okay. So 207, maybe even higher for your water temperature. Use a plastic vessel. Pre-warm everything that you're using. Don't go directly from a tower into a kettle and then from the kettle into the, into the coffee. It really doesn't make any sense. And just because third wave coffee bars are doing it, it doesn't mean it's the right practice. Well, I definitely agree to that. Next question from Michelle Alcheri. I would like to know more about your methodology of developing a batch brew coffee recipe using Fetco or any other brand. Trial and error is costly, especially when changing coffee types. Okay, this is a great question. And I think this is, it's, it's easy for coffee bars to blow off the importance of a good batch brew recipe because they just think, ah, oh, it tastes good. And they just don't think about how it could taste better. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, Vass, maybe, maybe 40 or 50% of your sales, at least in, say, the U.S., are batch brew. Maybe around the world, maybe it's more like a third, and maybe it varies country to country. But there's a lot of power, a lot of leverage in yeah, optimizing your batch brew, right? So a little shameless plug for a second. If you go to my blog and you sign up for the mailing list of the blog, you will get a little free gift. You'll get a little best practices for batch brew guide and it'll walk you through improving your batch brew. And a lot of people have used that and a lot of people have written to me and said that it really helped. Mm -hmm. So so how do you approach batch brew? First of all, uh, the first stage is called pre-wetting or pre-infusion. And you want to use at least two up to three times the ground water weight in water weight. Sorry, the ground coffee weight in water weight. In mm -hmm. other words, if you have 100 grams of grounds, make sure the pre-wet water is somewhere between 200 and 300 grams yeah. of water because you want to make sure the pre-wet is complete. You want to make sure all the grounds get wet. After you pre-wet, you want to wait. You want to pause. It's called a pre-wet delay. And you need to let that water soak into all the little crevices in the larger ground particles so it can begin dissolving things in there. This way, when percolation comes later, everything will dissolve and leave the grounds relatively easily. Mm -hmm. If there are some dry areas of the coffee bed, those are never going to catch up. If they don't get wet during the pre-wet, you're screwed. They will never catch up. Okay. From there, you want to use a bunch of pulses. Pulse brewing is really good because each pulse brings fresh solvent, fresh water into the coffee. And so you can have maybe another seven, eight, nine, ten pulses. And 
that's going to get you a really high extraction. And ideally, you want the entire process to take about six, six and a half minutes from the time you press the button mm -hmm. until the time the flow from the basket turns into a drip. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so in Michelle's question, so what I would like to highlight is that Michelle is talking about trial and error being costly when changing coffee. Oh, types. you're right. Do we have to change a batch brew coffee recipe when changing coffee types? Or is it just a matter of adjusting the grind setting, perhaps? My, my recommendation is don't adjust anything but the grind. Mm -hmm. Okay, the principles of how you get the most out of the coffee don't change, coffee to coffee. The grind setting may change based on roast development and coffee varietal. So, for instance, you know, you may have some Ethiopian that you need to grind a bit coarser, mm -hmm. and you may have some Colombian you grind a bit finer in order to optimize each one. But for all coffees, if we're using a refractometer, we're looking for the same results. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Right. So uh, how dark the roast is, how well developed it is, what varietal it is, all of those things will influence how high of an extraction you can get with that coffee. Okay. Arguably, you're looking for about the highest extraction you can get without any astringency. Okay. So you know that you know that feeling of dryness you get yeah. when from channeling, yeah. from localized over extraction? Yeah. You want to avoid that at all costs. And if you can go a little bit finer and get a little more extraction without any astringency, then you're succeeding. But just be aware that a lot of people are not very good at, at sensing astringency. So you might want to have a few people from the same company taste mm -hmm. the same coffee, wait a few minutes and see if there was any dryness left in their palate. Okay. Okay. You shouldn't get any dryness, especially with batch brew. It's very easy to avoid the dryness. Okay. Awesome. So off to a question from Tariq. Hi, Scott. How do we measure TDS for espresso in the refractometer without VST syringe filters? Thanks. So you can be surprised by this fast, but this is the question I received most frequently. I, I received probably five or six of this identical question amongst just about 20 questions. Mm -hmm. So this is tricky. VST recommends using this little syringe filter when you're doing um, unfiltered brews. Meaning, what I mean by that is if you do a batch brew or a V60, the coffee bed itself plus the paper filter do a good enough job of filtering out undissolved particles, mm -hmm. so suspended particles, that, that that resulting brew is good enough to put directly in the glass of the refractometer. Okay? When you do an immersion brew, like a French press or like that pseudo-Turkish coffee you've been making at home recently, uh -huh. or uh, cupping, or yeah. espresso, you may need to filter that solution in order to have enough, uh, say, like clarity. Not, you know, you don't want too many suspended particles because that could cloud the glass, the refractometer, and it could change the, mm -hmm. the number. Now, there are ways to avoid using the syringe filters, but everyone needs to be aware that you will lose some precision and some accuracy. Okay, so on average, if you if you take a shot of espresso, if you stir it up. Take about three drops, but no more, please, no more than that, of the espresso. Drop it on the refractometer. Immediately begin pressing the button over and over to get a reading. Wait until the, the reading is going to rise, because when you put hot stuff on a refractometer, which you shouldn't put anything too hot on it, put hot stuff on a refractometer, it takes time until the sample and the glass have merged in yeah. temperature. Yeah. And they need to merge near the temperature at which you re-zeroed it, or you won't get an accurate result. Mm -hmm. Okay, But let's say, let's say that you re-zeroed it at a slightly warm temperature, and they're merging at about the same temperature, mm -hmm. great. Eventually, the numbers keep rising, keep rising, and then they, they plateau. So maybe it says, you know, 9.5%, 9.6%, 9.7, 9.7, 9.7. That's your TDS yeah. for your espresso, okay? 
that is relatively accurate, but it's on average about 0.5 too high. Because of the fines. Or whatever's floating yeah. in there. Yes, whatever. I'm not going to make it a... It could be oils, could be fines. But the suspended stuff is definitely changing the number on the high side, usually by about 0.5 TDS. Now, my friend Mitch did a proper experiment. He's a much better scientist than I am. And he measured variance of something like 0.2 to 0.7 higher when doing this. So there was a lot of fluctuation. So this is not that accurate. But if you're just, let's say, testing out techniques, testing puck prep, you're not too concerned about perfect accuracy, uh, I think this is valid. Okay. And if you're, but if you're talking about numbers you want to communicate with someone else or numbers that you're you know, using for uh, something where you need a little precision, you've got to go with, with refiltering. Okay. Could you refilter with something other than the VST syringe filters, like, I don't know, AeroPress filters or... Oh, that's a great question. So there's an old technique where you take two AeroPress filters, you fold them into a cone, like an ice cream cone, uh -huh. and then you wet it with the actual sample. This way you're wetting it with coffee, not with water, with uh -huh. the water with, with diluted. And then you hold it over the refractometer glass, you take a little sample of your espresso, and you drip it through the AeroPress filter, and once you've got three drops onto the refractometer glass, you move it away. That would be... More accurate. Okay. Okay. Um, you could also buy two micron filters. Like in the US, you can get on Amazon.com. They're lab-grade filters. And those will do a pretty good job of getting your number closer. But what I would, I would implore people to do is don't be lazy. Don't take a shortcut. Okay? Yeah. Whatever method you use, test it over and over at least 20 times against using a VST syringe filter and see what the difference is, see what the variation is, and then see if you're comfortable with that. Please don't go around just saying, oh, Scott Rayo says you don't need a filter, it's all the same. Because that's not that's not the case. Yeah, and refractometers are pretty expensive already, so you may as well do the full job. Yeah, you want you want reasonable accuracy, right? You didn't spend all that money, you didn't you don't take all this time and waste so much coffee just to get VS numbers. But just be aware that you can get quasi-accurate results without a filter. Oh, and, and the last piece of this this puzzle is that when you make this shot and you want to measure it. Stir the shot and do this all very quickly, okay? If you let the shot settle, or if you let the sample on the refractometer glass settle, the suspended solids are going to settle on the glass and it's yeah. gonna change the number. So basically, you make the shot, you stir the shot, you take a little sample into a pipette, you put three drops in the refractometer glass, you start pressing the button right away. This whole process should be done in less than a minute, easily. Wow. Probably 30 seconds. Otherwise, you have the risk, you know, you'll notice this too, if you leave the sample on the glass long enough, the number starts to change because solids have settled onto the glass. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So a question from Ghazi Almoyed. When building your own water for espresso, is a general rule if the water does not work on a filter brew, that means it would also not work on espresso? Can this be used as a guide to choosing a water for a given coffee? And secondly, I haven't had good results with the Barista Hustle recipe water on Kenyans. Has this been something you noticed? might be to do with the fact that Kenyans need more buffer? Okay, so these, these are great questions. They're a little tricky. So should you use the same water for espresso and filter? Uh, one answer is, is yes. It, the, if, if it works well for filter, it should work well for espresso. I see, I see no problem there. I often use the same water at home for both. Um, that said, the optimal water for espresso and the optimal water for filter are not the same. But is that just because of the water's damage on the equipment for espresso or taste-wise? Uh, so both. So that's a great question. With espresso machines, you have to be extra conscious of not causing scale. 
So there's something called the Langelier Saturation Index. You can Google it. And there's several online. There's, there's one that I, I've found that I, I trust a little more than others. But find one that allows you to use temperatures that are above boiling. Enter into, into it. Uh, and also find one that allows you to separate the calcium uh, from the general hardness. So you enter your calcium level, you enter TDS, you enter your pH, and you enter the water temperature. And it tells you how much scaling you would have over the course of X amount of water in the boiler. Wow. Okay, it's, it's amazing. So with espresso water, you always want to do that. You never want to just guess and say, oh, this won't cause scale. Uh -huh. So use this Langelier saturation index to make sure it's safe for espresso. Now, it should be safe for filter too, but you just don't have to worry about that as much because generally with filter, the water doesn't get as hot as it does in an espresso machine boiler. Okay, hotter water will drop more scale, all else being equal. So for flavor though, great water for filter is going to make great water for espresso, pretty much. But it's okay to use more buffer, more alkalinity, more bicarbonate, all quasi-synonyms, when you're making espresso because it's not that the pH of espresso is that much different than filter coffee, but the concentration of acidity in espresso mm -hmm. might be, let's say, eight times greater. Let's say your espresso is 10% TDS, mm -hmm. and let's say your filter coffee is 1.25 TDS. 10 is eight times 1.25. So you have eight times as much acidity yeah. per milliliter, let's yeah. say. All right? So because of that, you could use more buffer in espresso and get a more balanced acidity than if you use like typical filter brewing water for espresso. And, it, and that would be maybe the same reason why uh, Gazi mentioned that the barista hustle recipe did not work so well on Kenyan. So that's possible. Now, he didn't specify whether he was talking about espresso or filter. Let's assume that he's talking about espresso for the moment. Um, I have to say that I've had nothing but success with the barista hustle water recipe. I think it's awesome. It's amazing that you can buy Epsom salt and sodium bicarb. For, for less than 10 bucks, you have basically enough salts to make years of good water mm -hmm. once you go out and get some distilled water or super, super low TDS water. I think it tastes great. It's got tons of magnesium, which draws a lot of sweetness out, and it has zero risk of causing scale because it doesn't have any calcium in it. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So, so breeze tussle water is very safe, very tasty. Well, the water's tasty, but it's more about making tasty coffee. So, Ghazi, I think if you're having problems with Kenya with the water, I think it has a lot more to do with the roast of the Kenya and perhaps the extraction level and the extraction quality. I don't think it's the water's fault. One thing you could try if you're making espresso is make a more concentrated recipe of the barista hustle water or just add a little more sodium bicarb, like, you know, unbalance the recipe a little bit and see if that mellows out the Kenya a little bit. Okay. All right. Let's take one more set of questions and then we'll call it a day. Okay. So a question from Jason Richter. Hey, Scott. Here are two questions I have right now. One, how do I make sure I'm choosing the right charge temperature for an individual bean? And secondly, how does ambient air temperature affect the flavors you get in the cup? So Jason, full disclosure, is a client of mine. He roasts on a, on a large Diedrich roaster. Um, Jason, choosing the right charge temperature, I, I don't think there's a way for you to make sure you're choosing the right charge temperature. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult in roasting to isolate one variable. There's no way to isolate a variable without a whole bunch of other things shifting as well. Mm -hmm. I think if you're getting scorching or tipping, you may want to look at your charge temperature as a potential candidate for the cause. And I think it's also important to remember that charge temperature is not as important as what you are doing between batches. 
So Vasily, between batches, you try to cool the drum of the roaster and you try to bring the roasting machine's thermal energy back up to a certain set level that you always start out roast mm -hmm. with. Okay. Now, let's take two scenarios. One where a roaster turns off the gas, lets the bean probe reading go down to, say, 350 Fahrenheit, yeah. turns back on the gas and charges as soon as it gets to 400 degrees. Yeah. Right? That's 400 degree charge temperature. Another roaster chooses to do it a different way, where he leaves the gas on for a while after dropping a batch. It goes up to, say, 430 Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. and then he turns the gas low or off. It drops to 400, and he charges. Both roasters charge the 400, but the second person's drum is far hotter yeah. than the first person's drum. So charge temperature by itself is not... You can't isolate it. You can't talk about charge temperature without having the context of what you did between batches before you charged. So... Do different beans require different charge temperatures at all? It's, it's not so much that different beans do, but all else being equal, for a given machine, larger batches, you should probably charge a little hotter. Mm -hmm. um, how dark you roast may be a factor in this. Um, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty tricky to nail down. It's like you could succeed. Let's say let's say Jason wants to do twenty kilo batches and forty kilo batches, mm. right? He could make either one succeed with a 400 degree charge temperature. Realistically, he should probably say charge the 40 kilo batch at say 420 and the 20 kilo batch at 400. Mm -hmm. So you should scale it a little bit based on batch size because the larger batch is going to suck up a lot of heat from the drum and the roasting environment compared to the 20 kilo batch. So starting off with a little more energy is a pretty good idea so that the roast doesn't start too sluggish. But, you know, Type of coffee, how dark you're going to roast, how big the batch size is, all come into play here. It's I don't in any way want to give the impression that charge temperature is not important, but as long as you're consistent and as long as you're choosing reasonable charge temperatures, you're in good shape. Uh, for instance, I ran into a drum roaster recently. They were using a charge temperatures of about 300 degrees Celsius, which is, I don't know, really, 550, 570 Fahrenheit, something like that. Um, that's way too hot in a machine like a Diedrich. And I understand why they were doing it. The machine was a little underpowered. They were trying to put too much coffee in it. They were trying to push the coffee along. But that's going to cause some pretty harsh flavors in your coffee. So if you're in a reasonable range, if you're in the you know, 380 to 420 range, arguably your charge temperatures should be somewhat similar to your final end temperatures when you're roasting. They don't have to match perfectly, but, but that's, that's one guide. You're, you're in good shape. Uh, larger machines generally require slightly higher charge temperatures than smaller machines. But I don't want to try to prescribe it because that's kind of missing the point. Okay, and so how does ambient air temperature affect the flavors you get in the cup? Okay, so I'm not sure if Jason's referring to the, the ambient temperature in the roastery or ambient temperature in the machine. So I'm going to assume he means in the machine because uh, I, don't, I don't see how ambient temperature in a room would, would matter too much. But within the machine, one thing to remember is that your air temperature probe is has its own special numbers that may not match someone else's. So depending on how fast the probe is and mm -hmm. where you put the probe mm -hmm. and how fast you roast, your numbers may be 20, 30, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, half of that by Celsius, um, you know, higher or lower than somebody else's. So, so the actual numbers are more of a proxy than, than accurate numbers that are, that are relatable to other people. Um, I would just say that you can't taste it so easily. I can't taste a cup of coffee and say with any confidence how hot the air got in the roaster. I don't think that's possible. I think, again, if, you, if you're if you not using best practices and you go to some extreme, 
you let the air temperature go up to say, you know, 550 Fahrenheit or maybe 280 Celsius, whatever that is, you're going to get some taints. But it, the taint isn't going to be from the air temperature. The taint is going to be from the metal of the machine getting too hot. So I was with the client once using an air roaster and just for fun, we charged the air roaster at 500 Celsius, yeah. which is 900, 900 something Fahrenheit. There was absolutely no flavor taint from it. It didn't damage the That's beans. It didn't, it didn't burn the beans. So extremely hot air is okay. And we see this in very large industrial roasters that roast incredibly hot and incredibly fast. There are industrial roasters that roast coffee in three minutes. They're not optimal. Like they, they make weird acidity. But the point is there's no burning. There's no, there's no obvious damage to the coffee. So I don't want people to worry about the air temperature, temperature per se, but I always want them to worry about the metal that's touching the yeah. beans. Conductive heat transfer can damage coffee very easily. And one of the great skills in drum roasting is to how to figure out how to roast to a certain color in a certain amount of time with the minimal conductive heat transfer. Okay. Wow. That's very interesting. So sorry, that was a long-winded answer. Yeah, it's very it's very confusing for anyone like me who doesn't have so much experience with roasting. But I'm sure going back to it after understanding what happens in the machine will be will bring a lot of insights. Did it make sense? Of course. Okay, awesome. All right, so let's wrap it up there. Um, thanks for the questions and thanks for participating. Yeah, and it's my pleasure. And thanks everyone for giving me more more things to ask Scott. <laughs> more Just what we needed. So I'd love your feedback. Please get in touch on my Instagram, where is Scott Rayo, or on my blog. Um, if you want to send questions to the podcast, please email them to scott at scottrayo.com. Please don't send them via Instagram because thumb typing is, is no fun. Um, and let's get back together in another, in another month or so and do this. Awesome. All right. Thank you.